Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. Since March 2009, the Bank of England has purchased about $850 billion of UK government bonds and a few other bonds. The objective, at least initially, was to stabilise the banks following the financial crisis when they took huge losses by giving an assurance to customers and investors that they were not about to run out of cash. Also, to keep interest rates low to encourage people to invest in riskier assets and get the economy moving. The idea was never for the Bank of England to start directly financing government expenditure or printing money like the Reichsbank in Weimar, Germany. But QE carried on long after the crisis receded, and more than 50% of cumulative bond purchases have taken place since March 2020. Now, to many of us, QE is a bit difficult to understand. It all sounds a bit like the magic money tree might have sprouted in the governor's garden in Threadneedle Street. But is it? So we thought we'd get along an expert to tell us. Tony Yates is an independent economist and former advisor to the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee. What he doesn't know about QE can be written on the back of the world's smallest non-fungible token. So welcome, Tony. Thanks very much. I know that I know that you know a lot more than we do about this stuff, but let's start with the basics, because I think we just need to set out how QE works and how it's meant to work. Maybe we'll actually start with what happens when the Bank of England buys a gilt from a bank. And what does that bank get in return? Well, the bank gets electronic central bank money or central bank reserves. In a financial market equivalent of £5 notes. When I use the shorthand that essentially it's printing money, I don't expect it to be physically printing money, but what you're saying is that is the effect of that transaction. Yeah, it is. It doesn't have to be done that way. So, you know, there's a lot of debate and thinking about QE that took place in the decade or more leading up to the US, UK, ECB, Bank of Canada doing QE, prompted by the early 2000s. US deflation scare, and of course, the Japanese themselves being the pioneers in this respect. It was always recognised that one could think of QE in two steps. You could have it done by the debt manager, or depending on how things are set up, the central bank, just doing a swap of the long gilts out there in the market for short government securities. Or one can do what we did, which is actually to create money in the process. We'll come back to the reserves, the money that's created in a second. But QE has been going on for whatever it is now, 13, 14 years, 13 years. It is always anticipated that it will be reversed at some stage through this process called quantitative tightening. Can you just explain for us what exactly that would involve? It would involve the opposite of quantitative easing. So during quantitative easing, we create electronic money, the electronic equivalent of printing. We go out and buy long-term securities. Quantitative tightening is the reverse. We sell those securities and or allow them to mature. You know, the reserves destroyed in the process. Another way to observe the same thing is that the central bank balance sheet shrinks back towards where it started from. Of course, the big issue is, does it shrink back all the way to where it started from? Or is there a permanent, semi-permanent expansion? And what we're seeing, of course, is that there is, in fact, going to be a semi-permanent expansion. Why is that? Why would it not go back to where it started from? Because, for a variety of reasons, the demand for reserves has gone up. 
Some of it because we've changed the way we regulate our counterparties, you know, predominantly the um, clearing banks. You know, we force them to hold these things so that they're in, in better shape in case the crisis hits. Partly because of the cha- difference in the risk appetite of those institutions uh, compared to the time before the crisis. So the, these institutions, we think, want to hold their assets in more liquid form than they did before. The worry, the concern for central banks is that this looks like permanent monetization. I mean, indeed, if, if one had nefariously set out all along to permanently monetize all or part of it, it would look like where we are at. If one simply wanted to try and supply the demand for liquidity that there was, then you would have a semi-permanent expansion of the balance sheet. I say semi-permanent because the things that I've talked about could always reverse. But just before we get on to that, your point about the sort of symmetry between QE and QT, it doesn't quite work, does it? Because when the bank is buying long-dated gilts, it's essentially a price-insensitive buyer. When it's trying to sell them in the market to try and reverse the QE, then the buyers are savvy, cautious, and often very reluctant buyers. So this process could be extremely expensive in terms of the impact that it has on longer-term rates. I think you may exaggerate the, the asymmetry and the difficulties. I think there are difficulties in potentially being gamed or causing distortions in market prices on either side. A lot of thought and concern and serious worry went into the quantitative easing stage, hmm. auction process. But certainly... The whole point of the policy was to allow the economy to recover. And a symptom of that is going to be a recovery in underlying real rates and the the appropriate policy rates and expectations of future policy rates. And so whilst debt service cost rises may seem painful, they were the whole point of it. Yeah. And just to Neil's point, I mean, the Bank of England did anticipate that it could take a loss unwinding quantitative evening. And therefore, did it not obtain at the very beginning a, an indemnity effectively from the government to say, if you lose lots and lots of money because you buy gilts for 100 and you can only sell them back for 50, we'll give you the 50. Indeed, I mean, the bank's own financial position, this is all immaterial. Cosmetically, it's not immaterial. But yeah, so in, the, in one of the great comic aesthetic ironies of the crisis, the authorities created a special purpose vehicle upon which to conduct um, quantitative easing, you know, the asset purchase facility, yeah. you know, which is a separate corporate entity you know, whose, whose balance sheet, the central bank balance sheet is entirely insulated from legally. So the whole thing is on us, the taxpayer. So ultimately, if there are losses in the asset purchase facility, we have to make them up. So the way the the circle is closed is that we get tax to fill in the losses in the asset purchase facility. Those losses could be very substantial because unlike most of the participants in these markets, I am old enough to remember the days of buyer's strikes in the gilt market when the government had to pay 15.5% for 20-year money. Something like that would be extremely painful today. It could be. But again, I, I think those losses, if one indeed can call them losses, would be dwarfed by the fact that the whole point of it was to generate this situation. A successful QE and low interest rate policy combined, together with all the other policies that were put in place after the financial crisis, ought to be 
putting the economy into a situation of rebound. Obviously, other things intervened <laughs> afterwards, yeah. and the pandemic. But absent that, this is what one would hope for, and the the economic returns from doing that would dwarf. Any effect of this on public finances? It sounds like the operation was a great success, but the patient died. Of course, it's not. It's not concluded. We've yet to get get these uh, guilts back out there. The patient's still hanging in there. <laughs> <laughs> That's the macro picture of what's happening here, and indeed, as as you interestingly suggest. The sort of losses that the Bank of England's asset purchase facility might have to take are a baked into the original structure, b provided for, and c if the economy really got going at great pace and and recovered fully, it would be fantastic. Is that is that a fair summary? I don't know. What do you think, Neil? Is that is that how you see things? <laughs> I think that sounds like wishful thinking to me, but okay. still, I think that's the structure. But let's get on to the reality of where we are, which is. We've come out of a pandemic. The economy isn't going very well, but interest rates are going up. And basically, these paper or electronic currency that's been created to pay for all the gilts that the Bank of England has bought are themselves receiving a rate of interest on the reserves from the Bank of England, which historically, as I understand it, wasn't the case, but was introduced after QE. Can you explain why that was? In the run-up to QE, there was a lot of debate about what, firstly, the economic floor to the policy rate would be in a very simple economic and finance model. And uh, we think of the floor as being zero, with an approximation for how much it costs to store and manage paper currency. But let's just call it zero. On top of that, there was a worry that as you got close to zero, you know, might cause very unpredictable things to happen in financial markets. In, in the US, the particular concern was w- over what was going to happen to money market funds. In the UK, because that then wasn't really a feature, the main concern was the effect that very low rates would have on some building societies that had exposed themselves to very low nominal rates. And so you might hit their profits and then that would hit rates that they charge to borrowers and that the effect of cutting rates beyond some point would no longer be stimulative. So I think the bank used to refer to this as the effective lower bound, the bound below which once you pushed the bank rate, it would no longer be stimulative for the economy. The Bank of England and other other central banks too wanted at the same time to uh, grow central bank balance sheets by doing QE hugely, but they didn't want the market to experience all the effects of that on market rates. And so if you shove a ton of reserves out out into the market, you would expect, you know, for a given demand, you'd expect the price to fall, the price being the interest rate. So they didn't want the interest rate to fall. So the idea is just to say, we will pay interest on reserves. And that is a way of the interest rate not falling below zero or towards zero or below the effective lower bound. And at the same time, being allowed to do QE on a huge scale. So uh, we needed to switch to interest on reserves. It follows from that, therefore, that it was a possible route out of this simply to reverse the set of steps we went into. So first to sell all the gilts back and do quantitative tightening before raising rates, and then either go back to uh, the way we set policy before or to carry on paying interest on reserves right. and raise rates afterwards. But the issue that's got people interested in this is the fact that what is happening in the asset purchase facility is they get the interest on all the gilts they bought from the system and they then pay reserves to the people who they've bought them from. 
in the last few years, there's been a very positive net balance. So they've collected far more in interest on their gilts pile than they've had to pay out. But now the concern is because the interest they're paying out on those reserves is going up, but of course gilts, as Neil knows, being fixed interest, just chug on playing this, paying the same coupons, there's a point at which they could cross over and it could start to become a net cost to the asset purchase facility in that it will need money from somewhere. So this has been seen as an opportunity. It raises the question, why should we bother paying interest on reserves? So why so do we'll it? See, why do it? Why not just go say, well, we're back to status quo ante. It's February 2009. No interest, guys. Get with the programme. Well, I mean, the first thing that we should bear in mind is that, is that the tax opportunity, the public finance opportunity is not really... Uh, public finance opportunity. And I'm not sure what the uh, the intent of those people who've been writing recently in the um, commentariat that we should be doing this, but it's written in a way that makes me feel that they don't grasp that. That there is an opportunity, or well, not yeah. an opportunity. The way to describe this without trying, I'll try and do it in a way that doesn't um, descend into jargon, although my mind is infested with jargon. So um, You can do it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Give it your best shot, Tony. <laughs> don't hold back. Yeah. You know, essentially, we're we're talking about shaking down banks or rinsing banks for some more tax. I'm not against that in principle, but we shouldn't think of that necessarily as an opportunity because we're all on the other end of banks. Almost all of us are. And so anything we take from them will be passed on to us. And so if the if the Treasury were hypothetically to take a stack of money from the banks, then say, oh, look, we can now repatriate this uh, with some tax cuts. All it would do is leave people like us exactly where we started. I must say, as a user of a bank, there doesn't seem to be much correlation between what it costs them to raise the money and what I have to pay for it. And I think that the argument that what is essentially an extra tax on them would immediately be passed through in higher borrowing costs, I think that's pretty thin. You can hold that view if you like. But of course, if we do want to tax banks, I think we should just tax them and not try and redesign our entire monetary policy stance mechanism to facilitate one particular tax when there are many taxes. We, we tax them all the time. We could just do a windfall tax yeah. tomorrow if we wanted. Yeah. Well, We'd have a lot of public support based if, a, if the voters are like, like yourself. Well, Neil's <laughs> a famous communist. <laughs> well... Uh... So, no. <laughs> and we could pre- we could prevent them. You know, if they didn't pass on these benefits or costs, you know, we can force them to. We force them to do everything. We manage their assets. We manage their liabilities. We manage who directs them. We manage what dividends are paid to their owners. I mean, there's almost no bit of bank behavior that we don't have a finger in. We really like nationalized industries. Nationalize the banks. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why the shares are so lowly rated <laughs> because the shareholders aren't really in charge. But I just want to go back a step for a second. And just, you did a fantastic job, by the way. I want to give you a upper <laughs> second for, for deep <laughs> jargon busting. Um, but I just want to just summarise what, what you said, just so I, I think that it's absolutely crystal clear, which is essentially QE has stuffed the banks full of reserves, which are basically the product of selling heaps of gilt to the Bank of England. If you basically conk out their reserves, their return on their reserves, you take away a substantial proportion of their income. And if that happens, effectively, they will find other ways of replacing that income, notably by shafting their customers, you, me, and even Neil, the famous communist. 
who's <laughs> indifferent to that because <laughs> he doesn't think it will happen. <laughs> no, I, I shall pay through the nose anyway. Is that a, a fair, fair characterisation, Tony? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, that is to make the point that it's not really a finance opportunity. So it's a tax opportunity if the government chooses to take it. It's an opportunity to change where the tax falls. It's not an opportunity to make money. Because like I said, you know, if the government repatriated the proceeds, we'd all be back where we started. I think what you're saying, Tony, is it's a stealth tax. And you being a straightforward guy want it to be an open windfall tax if if a tax it is to be. More than that, it's not a tax that actually leaves us any better off. No. Taxes don't generate wealth. A very profound point. But I wanted to just touch on another point about QE, one that I suspect nobody really knows the answer to, but you seem to be the most likely person in the room to have an answer. When we talked about money being created, you said, well, yeah, money was created, but it didn't really matter because there was so much money knocking around in 2009 and the economy was so flat on its back that the idea that that would get anything really to happen in the short term was wishful thinking. But a huge amount of QE was done after March 2020 in the pandemic. And that money, it's much harder to say, was not having some sort of stimulative effect because it was literally being poured out of the government's coffers into the pockets of people in all the support programmes that were taking place Do you think that there is any kind of difference in your mind between what happened in 2009 and even in 2011, the second wave during the euro crisis, and what has happened in the last two years? And do you think that it's got closer to the sort of money printing that's more the Weimar model than the kind of Mervyn King model, should we say? The way an economist would think about it, and I'm, I'm just, I can just am imagining your hearts thinking mm. as I am. <laughs> Surely not. You know, the furlough and other, other support policies are a bit like the government handing out food to keep people alive. And of course, we didn't, it didn't hand Subsistence out food, it handed help. out. Yeah. So, the, you know, what the government did to differentiate it during the pandemic crisis, I think one can think more economically about it as it being as if we were giving people food. Where do you think we are? headed now is the money supply now expanding still or is it starting to show signs that it might contract what's your view on that i imagine that it, well, we probably are heading into recession then lots of things that one could put it under that label will start to shrink or at least grow much less rapidly than before we know what's happening to central bank reserves. We're into the territory or more of what is going to happen to the real economy, you know, which will be the determining factor for the bits of the money supply that you know are used to undertake transactions by most people in the real economy. Yeah, I would guess that we are already contracting and that we will continue contracting for a month or two at least. When you say we, or do you mean the, the economy as a whole? I mean, the economy, you know, if you want to forecast what's going to happen to the money supply, then you... I think the best way to do it is to think about it through what's going to happen to the real economy. I think we'll take that as a yes. <laughs> Can I just bring it back? To a last question for me, or two questions, really. First is, what is the incentive for somebody, once they've created this enormous balance sheet at the Bank of England or the Fed, to actually say, let's now wind it in, let's tighten everything up and shrink the balance sheet? Is there a, an incentive? Because I, I struggle to see... What it is, really, maybe it is this uh, reserves problem or something like that, or just the fact that it begins to get rather expensive to carry on buying all these 
skills. And the second question, which is so it's linked to it, is do you think over the next five years we will see a meaningful contraction of the balance sheet of either the Fed or the Bank of England? I mean, all the central bankers that I know and interacted with have always been really uncomfortable by having to do this. Mm. So they'd like to stop. It forces them into explicit and lots of informal interactions with the finance ministries. You can see that in how Mervyn described the whole thing during his tenure. That's Mervyn King. Yeah. The insistence that the APF was created to make sure that the central bank balance sheets were indemnified was you know, an effort to try and keep the, the central bank and the finance ministries financially disentangled as possible. So I think although there's no formal incentive on central bankers to do anything, really, I mean, you could pose the question, what is the incentive for central bankers to set the right interest rate? Well, the incentives are very weak. You know, they just do their job because they like it and they care about it, by and large. Plus this sense of discomfort and conservatism, I think, that typifies a lot of central bankers. And if, you know, if I'd stayed in central banking, I think I would have felt the same. So you think it's basically just a cultural thing. They want to go back to what they see as normality. And they regard this as too heterodox for their taste. Uh, yes, I think so. And, you know, there's a deep-seated worry that, well, maybe people, if we don't get rid of them, people will consider them to be permanently monetized and therefore view all the institutions of monetary and fiscal policy as cosmetic and basically disregard it. Yeah. And then you're back to actual money financing is back on and then you're, you lose any hope of achieving price stability. Yeah. So I think that is a no. part of it, although it's not often painted in such stark terms. I'd say that's my view of central banking, yes. Well, it's a shambles. That, well, no, it's not a shambles, <laughs> but they are the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee in my view, has really ignored their mandate and are struggling to keep up. My concern at this point is that they will overdo it and we will have severe contraction as a result of them trying to catch up and get down to the 2% target, which is their mandate. I think that's what I would say is the most concerning thing at the moment. I think you're setting them up to fail there, Neil. It's a classic Collins <coughs> kind of nutcracker. You can't, you can't win there. <laughs> I think the first part of your comment there is far too harsh. But I agree with the second part that inflation has got so high that there is going to be a worry about whether they have the right information or even with the right information, they would be able to engineer a relatively soft landing. I'm not that optimistic that they will. We are already heading into recession, although that's because of monetary policy, but it'll be aggravated by the tightening. And just to come back to my question, do you think we will see in the next five years a meaningful shrink? It's hard to answer that question, isn't it, without trying <laughs> to forecast what's going to happen to you know, China's COVID policy and the war in Ukraine and, and all of that. <laughs> it's the Collins crystal ball. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's made of plastic. I suppose that China abandons its futile zero COVID policy and you know its contribution to the supply chains normalizes and let's suppose that there is some orderly resolution to the war you know Russia loses withdraws and it somehow reverts to stability maybe the sanctions regime doesn't change because we don't want to deal with them anymore given what we know they're <laughs> capable of I think that's a flying okay. pig I just saw passing the window <laughs> We have to condition on something in order to answer the question what's going to happen to central bank so If all those things are true, it might shrink a bit. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, like I said, we're going, to, we're going to bump up against a higher demand for central bank balance sheet size than we had before the financial crisis. So how far 
they would shrink before we got to that higher equilibrium point. I don't know. I mean, the Fed, we, you could argue that the Fed discovered it by accident in 2018-ish. The maturity structure of its purchases was such that just not reinvesting meant a very rapid shrinkage. And arguably, that's why we saw a spike in all kinds of short-term market rates was because they had bumped up against a surprisingly high demand for liquidity and therefore for central bank balance sheet size. And so we may find ourselves doing the same thing. We started out saying all the things you ever wanted to know about quantitative easing but never dared to ask. I think I've asked them all. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. Join us again next week.